for listening to this message from the Altar Fellowship. Thank you so much. Y'all can, you can be seated. The best thing about preaching this series for me is that um, every time I make a good point, I'm up here so I don't have to feel my wife elbowing me in the ribs like, did you hear that? Because um, I said it, you know. Uh, and here's, here's probably a principle that I think we all need to come to terms with, and that is that there is a substantial distance between knowing the right thing and doing the right thing. And, uh, and so I could stand up here and preach on only marriage for the next five years. And, uh, and unless there is a, a degree of conviction and devotion uh, in, in you that causes you to nurture and to choose what is right, even when you don't feel like it, even when everything in your soul is screaming against it and raging against it, uh, my preaching isn't going to do anything for you. And so my, my hope is that we can all sort of understand that, that what we're doing right now is, is working to establish a framework for what biblical marriage looks like and then learn for the rest of our lives to make choices and decisions that honor that framework, right? Instead of undermining it, we want to be people that, that set the standard and then that, that work toward meeting that standard. Now, uh, I have said this before, and I, but I think it bears repeating. Uh, it, I'm okay with people who struggle. I am not okay with people who lower the standard to accommodate their struggle. I, I, listen, if you come to me every week and say, Pastor, I did that thing again. You know, I, I went back to drinking and I really hate it and I, I don't want to do it. Please pray for me. And then the next week, uh, Pastor, I, I drank again. I really hate it and I don't want to do it. Please pray for me. I, listen, I, I have uh, an infinite level of patience for you. But for people that try to hem and haw and, well, you know, I, I don't think God really cares about my drinking. It's no big deal. You know, I still make it to work. I just like to blow off steam with my friends and what happens is we, uh, we, we twist God's word and we, we pervert God's standard to accommodate our own selfish desires. The, the person who does that is extremely dangerous. And I, I want you all to recognize that, that if that person is you, you need to repent and to commit to stop doing that, to hold the standard. It, listen, it's okay. It, it, it is human to fail to meet that standard. It is demonic to lower the standard to meet your, your desires. And so um, I, I'm okay with the person who says, I, I recognize the standard, but I've, I've failed to hit it. And I confess that and I acknowledge that and I recommit myself to that standard. Um, however, you should be very wary, whether it's you or someone close to you, if they begin to question the standard or to lower the standard to meet their desires, that is a very dangerous practice. And... Um, you should get far away before the lightning strikes those people. Amen? Amen. All right. Now that we've talked about lightning striking sinners, let's, uh, uh, I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to the Altar Fellowship. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. We are in the second part of a series that will be Lord knows how many parts on um, marriage. I'm calling it my Kingdom Covenant series. And this is part two. Now, we, I introduced the series by, by simply saying this, that biblically there are two primary connections that most clearly exemplify the relationship between Yahweh and his people. 
Those two connections are the relationship between a father and his son and the relationship between a husband and his wife. Over and over and over again, redundantly, consistently throughout Scripture, Yahweh likens himself to a husband, to a bridegroom, in the way that he rejoices over his people, in the way that he pursues his people. In, in the book of Hosea, he um, frequently uh, um, uh, speaks about the, the bride of, of Christ in the book of Revelation that makes herself ready for the coming of the bridegroom. This, uh, the, the sort of, uh, uh, there's a, a common thread that runs all throughout Scripture from the beginning to the end. That is of, 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 of Yahweh being like a husband who pursues and protects and provides for his bride. And last week we spent the entire, I, I spent the entire message trying to teach out of Ephesians chapter 5, uh, what the, the purpose of marriage is. And I think that whether you are married, whether you hope to be married someday, or um, even if, if you were married and, and for one reason or another that marriage is over, I think that, um, that, that understanding the, the purpose of marriage and the point of marriage is uh, not just critical for us as a family so that we can invest in and bless and encourage and protect the marriage's that are in our community, but also so that we can understand God's heart because that's ultimately what all of this is about. It's about knowing God. And, uh, and if we can understand God's heart for marriage, I think that we can uncover maybe a, a, a portion of what he's passionate about and what he, what he sees and what he's doing in our world that, that might have gone overlooked otherwise. And so I, I spent some time last week in Ephesians chapter 5 trying to answer the question, what is the purpose of marriage? Is the purpose of marriage to satisfy our physical desires? Is it to, um, to create a stable environment for the raising of children? Is the purpose of marriage to raise our social status or to cause us to become more mature? Uh, if I'm honest, all of those things may be byproducts of marriage. However, the primary purpose of marriage is to demonstrate the nature of God to the world. The primary purpose of marriage is to demonstrate the nature of God to the world. Because the truth is, you could do all of those other things without marriage. You can procreate without marriage, right? You can uh, raise kids without marriage. You can live together without marriage. You can split the bills and be roommates without marriage. There's every other dimension of benefit, or every other benefit of marriage you can get without marriage. The reason that the institution of marriage exists is because it is only in covenantal devotion that the, the character or the nature of God is, is demonstrated clearly. And I think this is um, I think this is a point that we have to recognize that that it, it is that there is a a, a degree of um, a dimension of commitment to each other that, uh, that doesn't make sense outside of a biblical context. And, and you can see it in the secular world as, as, you know, they've got apps that you can just scroll through and figure out who you want to sleep with that night. It's like, it's, there's a, an almost disdain for the, the traditional sort of institution of, of marriage. And it's because that institution doesn't make any sense it, it doesn't make any sense on a biological level. It doesn't make any sense on a social level. 
uh, where the institution of marriage makes sense is on a spiritual level. When we recognize that we are prophetic beings, that we are most satisfied when we are demonstrating God most clearly. This is where uh, the, the establishment of the institution of marriage came from, and this is why it is so critical that we honor that institution because it is not about you. It's not about your wants or your needs or your desires. It's not about your social status or your sex life. It's, it's, about, it's about showing the world what God is like. That is why we get married, and anyone who gets married for any other reason is in dangerous territory. Now, um, if the purpose of marriage is to demonstrate the nature of God, then we must approach it, I think, with care and commitment. You know, we, we talk a lot about love in the church. You know, we, we sing songs. They will know we are Christians by our, our love. Um, you know, you have hashtags and t-shirts and tattoos and all of our best slogans in the Christian church, they're, they're all about love. We, we, we treat love like it's this defining principle for us. We debate it. We protest for the sake of it. We promote it like that's the core, the, the central value of our belief system. Because when asked, Jesus, when asked, what is the, the most important commandment? Jesus says it is to love The Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is just as important. The second is like it. It is to love your neighbor as yourself. And um, I I taught several months ago this this paradigm shift that had happened in my heart that God had taken me to that verse and said, what does it mean really to love your neighbor? Who is your neighbor but the person who's closest to you? Isn't that what a neighbor is? You know, we, we... constantly are, are taught to use love as an evangelism tool. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't love unbelievers or people that are outside of the church, but I am saying that, that the commands of Scripture are things like, uh, the world will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. The commands that we receive in Scripture about love doesn't mean to go and love people who don't know you, the people you're never going to see again. It means to love the people closest to you most passionately. It doesn't mean that we're indifferent to everyone else, but it means that if we love the stranger on the sidewalk, but we don't love our spouse, we're wasting our time when we are not demonstrating the kingdom. Right? If we we love the people that we see on Sunday mornings at church and then we tear our kids apart when we go home throughout the week, we are not demonstrating the kingdom. Love starts right here. It starts right here with the relationships that are closest to me. And if I can't love them, I have no business trying to reach the world with the gospel of love. And so this this idea about loving our neighbor, it demands of us that we come to grips with the fact that our neighbor is not not primarily the random stranger that we bump into at the grocery store. Our neighbor is primarily the person who sleeps right next to us every night. Who is your neighbor but the person who is closest to you? And if you can't love the person who's closest to you, you have no business preaching to anyone else. And so when Jesus commands that we love our neighbor or our spouse in, in this context as ourself, he establishes a prerequisite to be able to love, and that is that we would love ourselves. And we'll go more in depth with this 
actually next week, but I, I, I think it just it, it bears stating today preemptively that your capacity to love your spouse is in is to a significant degree dependent upon your ability to take care of yourself, right? If, if you die of a heart attack at 41 years old, you're not going to be doing a very good job loving your spouse. If you, uh, if you come home from work so exhausted and so spent and so overwhelmed that you don't have the energy to speak a kind word to your family, um, you're, you're not doing a good job loving them. And so your ability to care for yourself actually increases your ability to love those around you. And, uh, and again, we'll go into this in greater depth, but I think that it, it bears repeating that. As Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. That the, the prerequisite to being able to love anyone means that I would take care of myself. Because if I can't take care of myself, I certainly can't be trusted to take care of anyone else. Now, uh, one of the I, I want to, let me spend a little bit more time on this because I think it is worth sort of deconstructing, uh, <laughs> sort of deconstructing our idea of love. Because I would be willing to bet that most of you were raised to believe that love is supposed to be um, the way that we reach the world. We're supposed to love the unbelievers and the lost. We're supposed to love the people in our neighborhood, the people we're trying to reach. When you go on missions trips, we're supposed to go and love these um, you know, needy or impoverished people. And, uh, and I, I think that all of that is really crucial. And, and yet, at the same time, nearly half of Christian marriages end in divorce. Um, kids are being abused in Christian households. Um, in, infidelity is happening regularly in the Christian church. We love the idea of love, but the practice or the implementation of love is so much more difficult than the idea. It is way, uh, way easier to stick a bumper sticker that says love your neighbor on your car than it is to actually wake up every day and to choose your spouse. And ultimately, that I think is the problem. So that we have been taught that love is a feeling. And when the feeling fades, so too do our actions. The truth is that love is a choice. Love isn't what you feel, it's what you do. Um, love isn't what you feel, it's what you do. And when, as your feelings fluctuate through the years, and they will. I know that you know, if you just got married, you think that, that the, the sun is going to shine out of your spouse's smile for the rest of their life, you know, and, and, and they just, they're just incredible. Everything they do is magic and time stands still when they walk through the door and the angels sing, the heavens open. But then, you know, a few years in to your marriage and like it's, you were up late the night before cleaning the house and they're snoring in the morning and their breath smells like a garbage can and they're just maybe not as magical as they were at first, you know. Um, and, uh, and in that moment, are we going to withhold, are we going to withhold love? Are we going to withhold, uh, uh, actions that, that communicate our commitment and, uh, and care for that person? Well, that's the problem is that many of us do. 
We, we get divorces because we say, well, we just fell out of love. We just don't love each other anymore. We, we get divorces because we, you know, fell in love with some coworker or some random person we met at the gym or whatever. We have such a connection with them and I'm just so in love with her. It's like, that's, that's a choice you're making. It's a choice. You're choosing to love someone who's not your spouse and you're choosing not to love your spouse. And I, I think we, we've got to get past this wrong thinking about love as being a, a random and uncontrollable feeling. That it's just, you know, Cupid shot me with the arrow and I just can't help who I love. The truth is you really can help who you love. You can help who you love because love is not the feeling. Love is, is the choice. It's the action. It's, it's what you choose to do. And if you will choose every day to, to wake up and to consciously prioritize your partner, you will find at your 50th wedding anniversary that you have loved them well. And love means, and maybe I'm speaking, maybe I'm speaking here a little bit more to men than, than uh, or to the husbands than to the wives, but I think, I think this is worth contemplating as well, that love means protecting and providing for the object of your affection. Um, the Bible ref- references women as the weaker vessel. And uh, the, the, the phrase, the weaker vessel, doesn't in any way speak to value or to potential. It speaks to actual f- physical um, strength. And so it, it literally only means that she can't lift as much weight as you can. And honestly, there's a few men in the church that I'm not convinced that that's the case in, in your situation. <laughs> I'll let y'all think about who that might be. Looking at you, Luke. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> um, and, and however, the reason that generally speaking, God has made men stronger than women or bigger than women. It's not to dominate, not to control, not to injure or intimidate, but to serve, right? The reason that God has given you muscles isn't to look at them in a mirror. It's to open a pickle jar for your wife. (laughs) That's why. Is that right? Come on. I got a witness out there. I like it. That's the the reason that God made you a foot taller than her isn't so that you can tower over her and make her do what you want her to do. It's so that you can reach the... uh, the, the pan that she put on the top shelf when she was ambitious one day and trying to organize. If you come into our house, you'll find that there's nothing in the kitchen above like six feet in the air. And she's just, she couldn't reach that high to put anything there, let alone get it down. <laughs> we, we actually, we have a stool in the kitchen is what it is. We got a little stool she climbs on. But um, I, I keep trying to tell her she should let me come lift her up so she can reach stuff, but she doesn't. She never lets me do that. <laughs> but uh, I, I think I think this is worth spending some time on. Um, I can think of very few violations of God's order more severe than for a man to use his strength to to injure or to intimidate his wife. And so I want to make sure that you hear this from the pulpit at the altar fellowship. Uh, If if I find out, husbands, that you have physically uh, abused 
or emotionally intimidated your wife, if you have used your strength as a weapon against her in any way, you'd better hope that the police get to your house before I do. Because I'm coming with Pastor Zach and Pastor David. We'll bring Tracy and James Vega just for good measure. (laughs) And we're going to have an intervention. And, uh, and, and we're just going to let you know how, uh, how, how not fun it is to be injured and intimidated, right? <laughs> the table will turn very quickly. And, um, and I, say this, I say this because I love you. I say this because, because your soul matters to me. And, and if you have gotten so twisted around that you are attacking your wife, that you're putting your hands on your wife in a way to, 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 to injure her, if you're using violence or intimidation against your wife, there, there is such a perversion, a deep deception in your soul that I fear that your eternity may be on the line. It's, and so it's not okay for us to just say, well, hopefully he figures it out. You know, I, I heard a story years ago about a, a pastor who, I, I, one of the things I do well in life, there's a long list of things I don't do well, but one of the things I've done pretty well is to learn from other people's mistakes. It saved me a lot of trouble. I made a lot of my own mistakes, but uh, I've also learned from some other people's. And one of the stories that I have kept sort of tucked away for when I need it is the story of a pastor in Columbus, Ohio, who had a woman come to him on a Sunday morning and she pulled him aside. She came forward for prayer and she said, hey, pastor, um, my husband for the last couple months, he's been coming home so angry. He's been, he's been hitting me, slapping me and throwing me around the house. I'm just so scared of him. I, I don't know what to do. He's been using violence against me. And, uh, you know, could you please help? And, and the pastor just, you know, he prays for her and he says, he gives her the Christian answer. You know, just try to submit more and pray for your husband. It's gonna be okay. Let's just... Hope he figures it out. I'm sure he'll be okay. You just keep coming to church and, and uh, sort it out. And, and within the next seven days, before the next Sunday, that woman's husband had beaten her to death. And, um, and so the determination in my heart has always been that if I ever get that report, we're going to deal with it and we're going to deal with it right now. And I, and I mean, I'm going to call the cops and I'm going to say, hey, police, I just got a report that this husband has been hitting his wife. I'm on the way over to the house. I'll race you there. (laughs) We're going to get this handled. And so I'm trying to teach you the fear of the Lord today. And if you don't fear God, maybe you'll fear me. I'm very well armed. (laughs) And listen, I've got a room full of people that'll vouch for my character. And so I feel like I'll be all right. Yeah, these guys will... Daniel, Daniel Tercios will be my alibi. I'll, be, I'll say it. He'll be like, Matt, he was at my house. We were playing Monopoly all evening. It's nothing happened. <laughs> I'm glad to know. And so uh, I just, that, this is going to be our, our ministry. Right? We're going to have, we've got, listen, we've got a hospitality team. We've got a worship team. And we're going to have a, um, a tactical, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's right. A, a, a female protection unit in the church in Jesus name. Does that sound good? Email the office if you want to sign up for that ministry. 
Yeah. <laughs> so um, now I, I should say this. What we are looking for, what we are after as kingdom people is not to become passive and indifferent people. And, and I think this is the, the other end of the spectrum. As men, we don't want to be domineering. We, we don't want to be men that, that, that are sort of a tyrannical force in our house that use our size and our strength as weapons against our wife. But at the same time, almost just as dangerous is to be weak and pathetic and indifferent, right? I mean, no woman wants to get hit by her husband, but no woman wants to be married to a pathetic loser of a husband who just can't make any decisions and has no opinions and just, well, whatever you, whatever you want to do, it's fine. Listen, indifference is not love. Indifference is not leadership. It's not, it's not, it's not good leadership for you as a husband to abdicate all of your decision-making to your wife. God, that's a revelation. I hope you can hear this. It's, it's, it's not strong leadership. It's not compassionate leadership for you as a husband to abdicate all of the decision-making for your household to your wife. Your wife shouldn't be making all the decisions about how to raise the kids and how to spend the money and where you should live and what color you should paint it, uh, paint, paint the house and what car you should drive and what church you should go to and what job that you should get. You as a husband are going to have to make some choices. As the head of the house, you're going to have to make some decisions. This is what loving leadership looks like. It looks like making choices that are in the best interest of your family that is going to follow you in the choices that you make. It doesn't look like I'm too scared to make a choice. And so I'm just going to sort of pathetically feign indifference and make my wife make all the choices. Can I tell you the moment in my life that probably made me feel most uh, secure and strong and capable as a leader and a husband. It was, it was the moment that I was pulling into the, the parking lot of the church we'd been attending at this point for about six years. I'd scheduled a meeting with my spiritual father and my wife didn't have any idea uh, why I'd scheduled this meeting. We're pulling into the driveway and she says, what is this meeting about anyway? And I said, I'm about to tell Apostle Aaron that I think the Lord is calling us to move out of Mobile and to plant a church. Now, we had never talked about pastoring a church before. We had never talked about church planting before. We had not discussed moving uh, out of our house, let alone moving out of our city, let alone moving out of our state before. She had not heard a, a hint or a whisper of any of these things. And she turned to look at me with her eyes very wide. And after about three seconds of thinking, she said, okay, I'm with you. And I'm telling you, those three words, women, wives, those three words will change your husband's life. For you to come behind him and say, when you lead, I will follow. Where you go, I will go to. What it does is it, it raises his level of personal accountability. His sin. Listen, because, because a husband who knows his wife is going to criticize any decision that he makes is very liable to just not make a decision. Right? Listen, this is probably a word for some of the women in the room. Uh, if your husband makes a decision, submit to that decision. Unless there's a problem. If there's something he's failed to consider, certainly bring that to his mind. But, uh, but, but husbands who, there's, there's nothing sadder than a husband who's been criticized into um, indifference. Have you, he's like a, 
He's like a pound dog that's been abused by his previous owner. He doesn't want anybody to come close to him. He doesn't speak up for himself. He has no strength. He has no voice. He has no vision. He's just, I'm just here to, uh, uh, to pay bills and to sh- keep my mouth shut. There's, there are few things in the world sadder than a man who's been, who's been beaten into submission by a critical wife. So wives, do yourself a favor and submit to your husband. And when I say submit to your husband, I don't mean put your opinions or your ideas or your heart or your passions on a shelf. I mean come behind your husband and say, I want you to lead. I want you to dream. And, and I want to bring my power. I want to bring my passion. I want to bring my skills and my resources to the table. I want you to dream for our family and let's work together to build that dream. And so when my wife looked at me in that moment and said, okay, I'm with you, I felt like I could take on the world. There's nothing. I, if, are you kidding me? If that woman is with me, no. y'all are in trouble. I don't know. <laughs> There's nothing I can't do. Anything is possible, right? I'll move any mountain, cross any ocean. There's nothing I can't do. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for that response because she easily could have questioned and criticized and you know, wavered and faltered and gone back and forth and, uh, well, I don't know, and just expressed all of her internal conflict to me. And I would have said, listen, if it's that big of a problem for you, I don't have to do it. And it would have just been, it would have stolen my passion for, for what was the word of, of the Lord. And so I'm so grateful for her willingness to say, I'm with you. And not to say that she doesn't have opinions that she freely expresses, but to say that she, um, even with her opinions and even with her, her authority and influence in my life, um, that she would, she would still say, I know that this is a word from the Lord. I trust your vision and I will follow where you lead. Man, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing better. And uh, so I'm going to go to Ephesians 4 today. And we're going to talk through some parameters for how do we navigate disagreement. Because if uh, men, if, if, if we're not going to be on, on, off on one side of the path as men that dominate and intimidate our wives. And, and then if we're not going to go off on the other side of the path as men that are pathetically indifferent and weak in every way, and, and we're going to be men that really walk the path, what does it look like for us to, to lead, to, to bring our strength to the table, to honor, to esteem, to protect and provide for those that are under our care in a way that matters? We're going to inevitably run into conflict. How many of you know that conflict is an unavoidable part of living with someone, be it a spouse or anyone else, right? It's, that's a, it's a non-negotiable. It's, it's inevitable. that it's, Now, when I say conflict, I don't mean that it's only a matter of time until you throw a kitchen chair at somebody's head. <laughs> we're going to talk about healthy conflict today, right? I, I don't mean conflict like we're screaming and throwing each other through windows and, you know, she put me in a headlock or anything like that. I'm just saying... We are, we're going to have differences of opinion, right? I want to eat here for dinner and she wants to eat there. Or, or uh, you know, I, I want to watch this movie and she wants to watch that one. How do we um, have conflict or differences of opinion or priority in a way that is healthy and productive because it is truly unavoidable? So in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 25, it says, Therefore, put it, putting away lying, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Okay, let's talk about this. Um, If if you don't have trust, you don't have anything. In marriage, if 
If your spouse isn't convinced that your yes is yes and your no is no, your foundation is cracked and you have a huge problem. And this is why when young couples come to me and they're dating and they say, hey, we want to, we want to honor God while we're dating. We'd like to get married someday. We're moving in that direction. Can you give us any advice? Just about the only piece of advice I'll give them is I'll say, well, what, what are your convictions about physical boundaries? And then I'll say to both of them, if, the, if your partner crosses the boundaries that you two have, have just set, you should break up with them and never talk to them again. Like that should be the end of the relationship forever. Because if you can't trust that their yes will be yes and their no will be no. That was so part of our story when Candace and I were um, first getting to know each other, we shared that we had a conviction to not kiss until we were married. And um, I mean, you've seen her, you know that it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And so, <laughs> probably not as hard for her, but uh, <laughs> bless her heart. <laughs> but, uh, but we dated for about a year and during that time, we had some moments that were like, this would be a perfect time for our first kiss. You know, we, when I proposed to her, we sat there for a while and just sort of held each other and we were listening to music and we, there were flowers and candles and, you know, it was like this perfect moment. We were all alone. We'd just gotten engaged and I thought, well, this might be a great moment to kiss. But, uh, but I thought, you know what? She needs to know that my yes is yes and my no is no. She needs to know that if I say I'm going to do something, that I'm going to do it. And so it's crucial, especially as you're dating. Now, if you, if you blew it when you were dating and you're 10 years into a marriage right now and you're realizing I've been totally unfaithful, totally untrustworthy, my wife doesn't know. If I tell her I'm going to do something, she has no idea whether I'm actually going to do it or not. It's a coin toss. I'm, I've not been a faithful man. I've not stewarded trust well in my marriage um, or, or woman. That, that's okay. It's okay. God can redeem this. You're not too far gone. It's not like your marriage is ruined and you need to quit and... and um, and, and try again with someone else. But what it means is that you've got a, a long road ahead of you, of building trust. And, and the way you build trust is through years of faithfulness, years of honor to the, the word of God that you speak. And so this is, hey y'all. And so I think that this is crucial for us as, um, as, as kingdom people that we recognize that, that what we say matters. And it doesn't just matter you know, if, if, if tell her I'm not, we're not going to kiss until after we get married. We're going to kiss on our wedding day. If I tell her that, and then we get six months into the relationship and I just think, well, you know, it's, it's probably not a big deal. I mean, we're engaged. We're definitely going to get married. We might as well. Then in the back of her mind for the rest of our relationship, if I say, I, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do this in the back of her mind, she's going to think, yeah, I've heard that before. And, and so it's, it's crucial for those of you that are dating or early in your marriage, I want you to understand that everything you commit to, everything you commit to is an opportunity for you to either invest into trust or invest into mistrust in your relationship. And so it's crucial if you say, you know, hey, I'm going to go to work and then I'm going to go to the grocery store and I'm going to come back and then you forget to go to the grocery store. You've invested in mistrust in your relationship. It's, it's really critical that your yes is yes to your partner and that your no is no to your partner, that what you say you're going to do, you mean. And so back to Ephesians chapter four, therefore putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Now 
Um, this this uh, verse has been, I think, misinterpreted often in, in verse 26. Uh, when it says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, people have said, you know, never go to bed angry. And I, I think that that is a noble um, idea. I think it's a great concept. People have written books about it and preached marriage sermons about it. And when we're talking about marriage, this is a verse that a lot of preachers will bring up and say, you know, as a policy, we, we always resolve our issues before we go to bed, never go to bed angry with your spouse. But here's, here's the issue. It is better to go to bed angry at your spouse than it is to stay up and fight. Can we just be honest? Like we all know this, you know. We stayed up till three in the morning screaming at each other and didn't get anything done. Like sometimes it would be better to just sleep it off, talk about it tomorrow. And, and I, think, I think that this is, um, that one of the issues here is that we, as a culture in the church, we fail to recognize that every couple is different, every situation is different, and that what we need is the active involvement and leadership of the Holy Spirit to be able to navigate marriage successfully. It's not, it's not enough. It's not enough for me to give you just like five policies. In fact, I'm going to give you five policies today. But it'll never be enough for me to give you five policies and for you to just do those policies in every situation. We have to rely on the active involvement of the Holy Spirit of God in every situation if we're actually going to navigate this thing. There's no, there's no definitive ten rules for a successful marriage because the way that we implement principles the way that we apply truths is dependent fully on the Holy Spirit's work in our life. And we need to implement these principles and apply these truths in a way that God shows us in every situation with nuance and skill that I don't think any one of us possesses um, to a, a high enough degree to be able to navigate marriage for the rest of our life well. And so Ephesians 4, it says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the accuser. Oh, I like this. Because um, as far as principles for marriage are concerned, I think that Ephesians 4, 27 is a really critical one. Do not give place to the accuser in your marriage. Now, you may be angry about what your spouse just said to you, but when your anger about what your spouse just said to you turns into, um, you don't respect me. You're not a good husband. You always talk to me like that. When it turns away from that thing you just said was wrong to you and the, the core of your being, you who you are as a person is fundamentally flawed. What's happened is we're not just addressing the issue at hand. We are identifying the person in front of us in a way that the accuser himself I think would be proud of. And so we cannot, we cannot, we cannot give way to the accuser. Now, with this said, therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil, the accuser. Now, with that in mind, I want to give you um, five uh, points. Now, uh, those of you that have gone through my premarital counseling. This is something that we talk through. Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Geneva Convention. Um, the Geneva Convention really is the result uh, finalized in 1949 of four conferences in Geneva, Switzerland that were really 
that, that happened just after World War I and then through and even after World War II that really helped to establish what are the rules of engagement when it comes to warfare from, between one nation and another. Now, this, I think, is in itself is a pretty incredible reality that, that nations who are at all-out war with each other would still say there are some things that are off-limits. Right? They're trying to wipe each other off the face of the earth, and even in that context, they're thinking, that's just too far. And so the Geneva Convention, it addresses things like uh, chemical or biological warfare. Um, it addresses things like the treatment of prisoners of war. We, you can't torture prisoners of war. It's a violation of the Geneva Convention. So um, you, you can't use, you can't attack civilian. You can't knowingly attack civilian um, populations. It's a violation of the Geneva Convention. So there are some things that, they've, that we've established. It's like something like 150 of the, the, the world's most advanced nations got together and agreed that they would abide by the principles outlined in the Geneva Convention. And so while I don't want you to be at war with your spouse, if you're going to be, I want to make sure that you honor the rules. There's got to be rules of engagement, right? So that, so that it doesn't go from like, hey, I don't really want to watch that show tonight. The game is on. Could we watch the game? So it doesn't go from that to like, you're just like your father. Get out of the house. You know, I wish I never met you. And it happens. It happens like that, doesn't it? You know, it's like, I, of course, wouldn't know anything about that. But, you, you know, you can, uh, uh, you can in marriage have a, a minuscule disagreement that turns into the fight to end all fights. And this happens because we violate these five principles and we let what is a minor issue turn into a major problem. And so I'm going to give you five very practical things, rules of engagement, if you will, for conflict in your marriage. You ready for this? Number one, this is a good one. Never address a problem when you are mad about the problem. This is a good one. And, and it's good for a couple reasons. Uh, to tell a little bit of, of, of our story, you know, Candace and I ha have not been in a lot of big fights or anything, but one of, the, one of the, the fights that we did get in started, and I, I can't even remember what the situation was. It's not a big deal. It, it wasn't a big deal, but we were checking out of a grocery store one night, and, um, uh, and I made some jokes. Some, you know, I like to make jokes, and I said a joke to the uh, cashier as we're checking out, and she said something to me like, like, what was that? Or why did you say that? And I was just so hurt that I, <laughs> I, was, I was so hurt because the truth is she just didn't think my joke was funny. But what, but what I heard was she hates me and our marriage is a sham. <laughs> and, and I think this, let's, let's talk about principles that can help you here. One of the principles that I think can help you a lot is, is that you need to understand that there's a, a significant difference between a feeling and a belief. There's a big difference between a feeling and a belief. I felt like she hates me and our marriage is a sham. That's how I felt. If, you, if someone would have sat me down and said, do you actually believe your wife hates you and that your marriage is a sham? I would have rolled my eyes and said, no. I don't really believe that. It's how I feel, but I don't really believe that. 
And, and honestly, feelings are real. They matter. And so you don't want to make your spouse feel like you hate them and the marriage is a sham. However, sometimes it happens inadvertently. And that's a strong feeling. And so we do need to recognize that our spouse's feelings matter and they should be able to share them freely. But I want to give you a, a trick of the trade here, a tool of the trade here in, in regard to the way that you communicate to your spouse. It will change your life if you can tell your spouse, hey, when you did that, it made me feel like you hate me and our marriage is a sham. I, now, I don't really believe that and I don't want to believe that, but that's how it made me feel. And they may say, you're being crazy. And you may say, yeah, you're probably right. You know? Or they may say, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make you feel that way. Regardless of the response, it's really important for your sake and, and for the sake of your communication with your spouse that you be able in your communication to tell the difference between a feeling and a belief. Is this, this is good. This will save you. Because here's, here's the deal. If you believe that your spouse hates you. It is a code red, stop everything, fix this problem type of problem, right? If you actually believe your spouse hates you, you have to shut everything else down and we got to work on that issue. But if you just feel like that, give it five minutes and your feelings will change. <laughs> you know, just give it, just shut your mouth for five minutes. You're going to walk through the door you're going to change, change context a little bit and there's going to be a funny show on TV and you're going to eat your favorite snack because you got home and everything's going to be okay. Like just let yourself chill out a little bit. It's going to be fine. Now, if you get to the point where you actually believe that your spouse hates you, then we got to deal with that, right? And, and it's crucial that you be able to tell the difference between a feeling and a belief. When we respond to our feelings as if they are our beliefs, we end up overreacting significantly. When we respond to a feeling like it's a belief, we end up overreacting significantly. And this is why we can never address a problem while we're mad about that problem. And here's what I mean. In that moment when she didn't think my joke was funny and she expressed that to me, uh, I felt like she hates me, our marriage is a sham. And, and, you know, and then uh, you know, I say something back like, why do you always tear me down in front of people? You know, I'm just trying to make the world laugh. What's wrong with you? You know, and, uh, <laughs> and here's, here's the issue. Maybe I'm not saying this is the case. I'm not trying to revive the fight, but maybe she shouldn't have said that to me. <laughs> However, because of my emotional state, because I was defensive and angry and upset, she didn't hear godly, loving correction, she heard defensiveness. Because of my anger, because I was angry about the problem, all she heard was me trying to hurt her in my anger. And so she heard anger from me, which caused defensiveness in her, which looked like more anger back at me, and it escalated from there until we, you know, were angry at each other that night and then slept it off and we managed to make it. But I, I think uh, I, the, reason, the reason that I bring this story up is because I, I think it's a great study in how my inability to tell the difference between a feeling and a belief and my failure to address, to, to like wait until my feelings changed to address a perceived problem caused a fight when it should have been nothing. I should have just let it roll off my, my back. Now, 
Um, this principle, never address a problem while you're mad at it or while you're mad about it, is, I think, a really important and a really beautiful principle. Um, because you, sh- you should know that when you're upset about a problem, all anyone's going to hear from you is your emotional state. They're going to hear that you're mad and that you're just expressing your anger. However, we do, as, as spouses, we, we do have a responsibility to bring correction to our partner. I mean, we, nobody in the world has a better view of areas where your partner needs to grow than you do. You're called by God to help them in their journey to Christ-likeness. And so it's, it is important that we bring correction to our spouse. But if we try to bring correction when we're angry about this issue, when we've been victimized by their, um, their personality flaw, uh, all they're going to hear is that we're angry and we're lashing out at them. However, maybe your, your spouse makes a, a comment about a joke that you told and you feel very upset about it and you feel like, you know what? They always say demeaning and insulting things to me. They, they always make me look small in front of other people to make themselves look better. And, uh, and that, that really hurts. And I feel like as someone who loves them, I need to address this issue. The best way to do it is to wait until you're not angry anymore. Maybe that's 20 minutes later. Maybe it's two hours later. Maybe you sleep on it and it's the next day. Maybe it's two days or two weeks later. But get to a point when everything is cool between you and you're laughing together and you're sharing your heart together and both of you are confident and happy. Both of you are secure in your love and devotion to each other. And then say, hey, remember the other day you... You know, you said this comment. I just want you to know that when you say those things to me, it made me, it really made me feel like you don't love me at all. And it seems like really often you're, you're going out of your way to embarrass me or to belittle me in front of other people. And, uh, and I want to believe that that's not the kind of spouse you want to be. So could, could you work on that, please? I, th- I think it would be better for both of us. <clears throat> and then, you know, She's not hearing my defensiveness or my offense or my bitterness or my anger. What she's hearing is godly, loving correction from someone who cares deeply about her. And so not only does it protect us from escalating a situation when our emotions get out of control, but it also gives us the ability to bring godly correction when we're in the right frame of mind to do so. And I will go even further and say, um, if, if you begin to implement this policy, you will find that most of the huge issues that you absolutely have to address right now uh, aren't really huge issues that need to be addressed at all. That deep offense that she always does this or he always does that. And, uh, you know, I've got to bring that up to him. You'll, you'll find that two days later when everything's good and you guys are at peace with each other, that it's, it's, not, it's not an issue big enough worth interrupting a fun time to bring up you'll find that the big things aren't really that big and, and you can let them slide. Amen? That's principle number one. Okay, number two. Never, never insult your spouse to your friends or your family. <laughs> this is good. Um, you need to have, I should say this first, you need to have people in your life that you can be honest with about areas where your marriage is struggling. That's why you have pastors, spiritual leadership. It's why you have accountability. Your buddies at the bar are not those people. Ladies, your girlfriend, 
Your girlfriends at brunch are not the people who need to know your husband's failures in the bedroom. <laughs> not at all. Right? If you got in a fight last night, the group chat doesn't need to hear about it. Um, in fact, if, and we're going, we're going to go back to this Ephesians 5 principle over and over and over again. If the purpose of marriage is to demonstrate the nature of God to the world, then the best gift I could give to my friends is to convince them that I have the healthiest, most beautiful, incredible, wise, strong wife the world has ever known. And if I ever feel differently, I promise no one in this room will ever know it. Right? And, and it's not because I'm hiding anything. I've got people in my life that I can go to if we're struggling. Uh, you're not, none of them are in the room. You're not them. And, uh, and, and here's the thing. This, this is cancer to a relationship. Because everybody has those scummy friends from their old life that'll tell you, oh, well, just divorce him. He, girl, he doesn't deserve you. There's so many other guys out there. Come on, let me, let me set you up with my cousin. You know, you know those hood rat friends that'll give you terrible advice. <laughs> and you go find those friends when your marriage is in trouble. And those friends are the reason that so many relationships fall apart. You need people in your life who will say, don't quit. You'll regret this decision. You need people in your life that say, you can, you can manage this. People that you look up to, you need to bring it up the line, not down the line. This is a leadership principle. You need to bring it to people that have higher authority in your life than you do. Not your coworkers, not your buddy, not your cousin, not your mom or your dad. Your mom and dad need to think that your spouse is the second cousin of Jesus. The greatest, the greatest spouse the world has ever seen. Your, your parents don't need to know. They don't. They don't. You need a pastor in your life, right? You need spiritual authority in your life. You need covenant brothers or sisters in your life that you can go to and say, hey, we're struggling in this area. Please pray with me. Give me some advice. Would you contend uh, for us in this thing? And, um, and everybody else needs to stay out of it, okay? Never, never insult your spouse to your friends. N- number three, never use uh, past failures as weapons against your partner. Now, when someone, it, it, if, if you see a pattern of behavior that needs to be corrected, Please, in love, bring that to the attention of your partner. However, when your partner says, listen, that was wrong, and I confess it, and I ask you to please forgive me. When you say, okay, I forgive you, you then relinquish the right to use that thing as a weapon to falsely or wrongly identify them. And uh, too many times, too many times, man, I've heard from couples who, Somebody made a mistake six, years, six months ago or five years ago, and every time they get in a fight, that mistake comes back out. And um, uh, thankfully, I only am aware of this from counseling couples and from reading memes on the internet. My wife does not do this to me, and I'm really grateful for that. But uh, I've, known, I've known too many people who's, uh, it, it tends, I think, it's certainly not exclusively women, but it, it tends to be a thing that is famously attributed to wives to um, to bring up your past and throw it back in your face in the heat of an argument. Uh, that has got to be against the Geneva Convention of marriage um, because it's not rele- relevant to the task. Of, if you're trying to hurt someone, if you're trying to hurt someone, that's a, a great thing to do. Uh, but if you're trying to hurt your spouse, you are doing a terrible job at being a spouse. Um, do you want to know, 
Fellas, I want you to listen carefully. I'm about to give you the inside scoop here. Do you want to know how to win an argument in marriage? This is it. This is good. Ladies, don't listen to this. I've got to help, I've got to help the guys. Do you want to know how to win an argument? Don't say anything you're going to have to apologize for later. If you, if, if you don't say anything at all, then you don't have to apologize the next day. That's good. You win. Because I'm telling you, there's nothing that makes you feel cooler than when she's coming to apologize about what she said in the fight. And you're like, that's right. Kiss the ring, peasant. <laughs> I won. I won this one. <laughs> and here's the good news. Here's the good news about it. We obviously have no experience in this. But if you can just control your tongue and not say anything you're going to have to apologize for, then the next day or two days later when you calm down and she comes to you, you're going to, you're going to thank me for it. Now, here's, here's the good news about it, though, ladies, is you can both win. There doesn't have to be a winner and a loser. If you both get in an argument and don't say anything you're going to have to apologize for later, then congratulations, you've both won. Your house is happier. This is great. And so when it comes to um, saying things you're going to have to apologize for later, I think high on that list would be um, using your partner's past failures as weapons against them. Never do that. Uh, number four, this one is so counterintuitive. It's going to be hard for you, but I'm telling you it'll change your life. Never defend yourself. Now, I, I feel like I should say this. If your spouse is you know, chasing you around the house with a kitchen knife, Defend yourself if you have to, right? But I mean, if you feel attacked, lay your weapons down. Put your shield down. Take off your, that defensive spirit, that prideful spirit that needs to always be right, that combative spirit that can't let anything go. Take, the, take it off. Take off that thing in you that has to win at all costs, even if I wound the person that I love, I have to win this thing. Get rid of that. That, that, that thing in you that says, this is unjust. This shouldn't have happened. What they said to me was wrong. What they did was wrong. I have to protect myself. I have to stand up for myself. You don't. You, you do not. And, and this, I've had this conversation with probably more people outside of the context of marriage than, than in it. People come because they have conflict with someone else in the church and they feel like I've got to do something. It's like, you don't have to. You don't. What you have to do is to value the relationship more than you do being right. You want to, you want to win at the expense of your marriage? Who cares, man? I, like I'll lose 100,000 arguments if it means saving my marriage. It doesn't matter. And I think, I think this idea that we have to defend ourselves, it's, it's carnal, it's fleshly, it's self-serving fundamentally. And, um, and, and it, it causes us to approach our marriage with an unbiblical posture. It, it causes us to view the situation like it's me against her. Like she's on one side and I'm on the other and she's firing arrows or insults at me. And I've got to sort of hunker down and keep myself over here away from her. But the, the truth is that if, if I'm going to love, if that's the picture that she's over there on that side of the battlefield and I'm over here on this side and she's shooting arrows at me, 
instead of putting up a shield or a fortress and defending myself and building a wall between me and her, if we're going to succeed at this thing, my posture has to be like, I'm going to open my arms and I'm going to walk across this battlefield and I'm going to take whatever arrows I have to take to make sure that I get the chance to put my arms around this woman and to make her feel my love. This is the posture of love, of loving devotion. Husbands, this is what kingdom leadership looks like. It looks like taking the insults or taking the, the, the sarcastic comments or taking the, 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 uh, the accusation or taking whatever it is that you feel like you have to defend yourself from. It looks like taking it all and drinking it down and saying, I'm going to keep coming back for more because I'm going to love you and there's nothing you can do to make me stop. I will never defend myself from you. This is why love is, is so courageous. This, this is why love demands of us such incredible courage and bravery. Is because it demands of us that we repent of our impulse to defend ourselves or to promote ourselves, and that we lay down our arms, that we lay down our pride, that we lay down our ego, we lay down our need for um, uh, security or supremacy, and, and that we say, more than I need anything. I need to make sure that we are good. That's my priority, my only priority. And so number four is don't defend yourself. Never defend yourself. And number five, this is the last one, uh, and I think that number four leads into it. Um, it is, num- number, number five says, um, it's never you against your spouse. It is the two of you against the problem. Now, that problem might be that he's addicted to pornography. The problem might be that she's verbally abusive. Now, that's not to say that neither one of you can bring a problem into the relationship. Uh, However, we've got to recognize that, like I've got to recognize that my wife wants to have a great marriage. And that if there's something in her character if there's something in the way that she talks or carries herself, something in the things that she's doing that is undermining the fulfillment of her dream for a great, healthy, happy marriage, then I've got to be willing to say, babe, let's fight together against this issue. It's, it, maybe the issue is your pride, or maybe the issue is your drinking, or maybe the issue is uh, you know, your, your perceptions of, of, of sex or your insecurity or, or whatever. All of us, I, I think, bring issues that can be toxic or un, unhealthy or unhelpful to a relationship. However, we've got to approach those issues, not as it's me against you, um, but that it's us against the problem. And if it can be us against the problem, then no problem is going to be able to stand. Right? If it's us together against the problem, then no problem is going to be able to stand. And so our five points are never address a problem while, mad, uh, while, while you're mad about that problem. Never insult your spouse to your friends. Never use past failures as weapons against your spouse. Don't def- number four, don't defend yourself. And number five, it's never you against your spouse. It's you and your spouse against the problem. Is this practical enough for you? This is good. I'm telling you, these are all the things that I wish I would have known. This is 13 years all right. That's, yeah, 13 years. Feels like it's been six months, babe. I love you so much. Um, this is 13 years of trial and error. And so we're, we're trying to give you um, the stuff that we wish we would have known up front 
so that we could have avoided some of the difficulty and frustration that we've walked through. And so hopefully this wisdom can give you some direction and some foundation. Now, I, I, I want to challenge you to do something. Those of you that are married, actually, those of you that are not married, you should do this as well. I, I talked to the men about this this morning in men's prayer. We, uh, I, I watched last night the movie Gladiator with my kids because every boy needs to see some people get their heads cut off um, at some point in their life. And, uh, <laughs> um, and in that, thank you so much. And so in, and in that movie, I don't know if you have seen it, but in that movie, there's one of the greatest scenes of all time. There's a, a really wicked emperor named Commodus and, and uh, he tried to, to um, kill someone he was en- envious of uh, named Maximus. And Maximus, instead of dying, he got sold into slavery. And, um, and he uh, ultimately ended up becoming a gladiator and became very famous. And so the emperor came down into the arena to, to meet him. Now this emperor thought he had killed this guy and he's wearing a mask and so he doesn't recognize him and he, um, he makes the... Uh, the gladiator take his mask off and he takes his mask off and suddenly the emperor realizes who it is and he just turns wide as a ghost. Um, and he's asking him, you know, before he takes the mask off, he says, who are you? You know, reveal yourself. And so he takes his helmet off and he turns around and he faces him. And uh, oh, what's his name? Maximus, I got to see if I, I got this here. Max, yeah, he turns around and he says, he says, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. There it is. Um, General of the armies of the north, commander of the Felix legions, uh, 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 father of a murdered son, husband of a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. It's like the most epic moment in which, and and the, the holy thing about this, the sacred thing about this moment is that you get to see a man who really, really knows who he is. There's something incredible about somebody who can say, this is who I am. It's not, you know, regardless of what career path I may be on, regardless of how much money I may have or not have, regardless of how many followers I might have on social media, my, my identity is this. And when you meet somebody who knows who they are, is fully convinced and fully persuaded, is totally conscious and aware of who exactly God has said that they are, that's the kind of person that demands respect and that walks in effortless authority. And, um, and so I want to challenge you. I challenge the men this morning to do this. The truth is that none of us can become that person or discover that identity alone. Now, we may be able to write a paragraph about who we are alone, but, but the truth is I could tell you who I am and, and anyone who's close to me would tell you that there are times that even I don't believe it. There are times that I need my wife to remind me who I am. There are times that I need my brothers in, in the faith, my father in the faith, to remind me who I am. And I may have it written down on a piece of paper, but I need, I need the people closest to me to be really aware. It's like Jesus in Matthew 16. He asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? Because it matters to Jesus that the people closest to him know who he really is. And I think it should matter to us if it matters to him. And so as far as marriage development is concerned, this is what I'd like you to do this week. I would like you individually, not to get, don't get with your spouse and say, who do you think I am? Like you need to ask the Lord 
God, who do you say that I am? And I think you should write out a paragraph, just a paragraph answer, three, four, five sentences that answer the question, who does God say that I am? And then I think that, that when you're done with that, you should get with your spouse and you should say, this is who the Lord says that I am. And, uh, and I recognize that my ability to answer this call is in many ways in your hands. I would never have moved to Johnson City, Tennessee if my wife had said, no, I like Mobile. We're close to the beach. We got a palm tree in our backyard. We have a pool. We like our house. Kids are in a good school. I don't really want to go to Johnson City. I would have never brought it up again. Um, and so my destiny, the call of God on my life is in just about every way contingent upon her. And, and so bef before you move any further in marriage, you, you need to recognize today that um, your spouse holds your destiny in their hands. And so uh, my encouragement to you would be this week to, to write out, who does God say that I am? And then to bring that to your spouse. And I'm, I mean physically, like write it on a piece of paper and bring that piece of paper to your spouse and give it to them and say, this is who God has called me to be. Please, please don't let me fall below this standard. This is what I've been called to and it's in your hands. And, uh, and those of you that get that from your spouse, stick, stick it in your Bible, make a copy of it so both of you can have one. Stick it in your Bible, keep it close to you so you can see it. And remember, this is my, her call, the call of God on her life is my responsibility. And every choice that I make can either serve that call or um, undermine it. And um, so, you know, no pressure. <laughs> um, but I, th I think that'll be a really, a really beautiful exercise. My hope is that some of you, uh, I think probably many of you in the room have never really spent much time on answering the question, who does God say that I am? I think that's a, a problem. I think it'll make you stronger just to have a sense of personal identity. Uh, but I think also for, your, for you to understand and to recognize that your spouse in a lot of ways holds that in their hands is really crucial. And so um, I, th I think this week, share that with each other. Go on that journey together. I'll give you more homework next week. But uh, this is all you got for this, this first week. And uh, yeah, we're just gonna continue to walk this thing out. With, with integrity, character. And, um, and if there is conflict, we've learned how to win. Just don't do anything you're gonna have to apologize for later. Amen? Come on, Lord, we love you. Thank you for the gift of family. Thank you for the gift of marriage. Thank you for the gift of covenant. And, um, and, and the privilege that it is to demonstrate your nature to a world that so desperately needs to see you. God, I pray that you continue to fortify and strengthen the marriages in this house. Continue to... Uh, heal the, the hearts in this house that have been wounded by, um, by deception uh, or disappointment regarding marriage. Um, people that, that, that haven't been mar married yet, Lord, I pray that you would continue to bring encouragement and inspiration to them. Give them a framework for what to look for as you move them in that direction. God, we, we bless you. We honor you. Thank you for the privilege it is to stand together as a family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all, I love you. Thank you so much for being here. We will be back next week. We're going to keep um, walking this journey of Kingdom Covenant together. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this service from the Altar Fellowship. We pray that you were impacted powerfully by this message. If you have been personally affected by our ministry and you would like to partner with the Altar as we work to establish the Kingdom of Heaven, 
please visit our website at www.thealtar.org.